Mimi Aniobi is a writer, director, and executive producer on HBO's Emmy-nominated comedy Insecure, starring Issa Rae. Insecure premiered its fifth and final season on October 24th with Aniobi behind the camera as director on the seventh episode. She also served as showrunner, head writer for the HBO stand-up special Two Dope Queens, and wrote for both seasons of Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. Aniobi is in development on several projects for HBO as well as two features at Universal. She co-created, co-directed, and starred in a web series, Lisa and Amy are Black, and recently directed the award-winning short film, Honeymoon, which explores a modern-day Nigerian arranged marriage. Amy Aniobi, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And so I would like to welcome you. The creative process is something you've been working at for a, a while now. And we're so excited, but also a little saddened to see this last season of Insecure. But I feel it has like a perfect shape. So it's, uh, and we're very excited for what is on the horizon. What is it like to be a part of a show that has really had a huge impact on Black women and others? And, you know, just to, to see their reactions and telling these stories that need to be told. Um, that's such a great question, Mia. Like literally during the last week of production, um, we kept having this conversation, myself and the other um, uh, co-EPs and EPs, uh, Laura Kittrell and Denise Davis, we were talking a lot about like, we are, we are part of a cultural moment and we know we are, which is a very like kind of out of body experience because we kept thinking like, I, I wonder if when Fresh Prince was making Fresh Prince, did they know that people would be paying attention to them for years to come when they were making, you know, just any iconic black show, did they know? Because a lot of those shows when you look back at their history, they were like on the bubble. And, and I always think that about like girlfriends and living single, did they know that people would still be talking about them? And I think there's always a hope that they will. But what was interesting about that final week of production is because we were all sharing our memories on social media and then we were getting responses. It wasn't like we were sharing them into a vacuum. People were responding and fans were saying like, I'm crying watching your stories and all this stuff. And that's when we were like, oh oh this 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 is important it's more important than us um and it was such a surreal feeling and something that like honestly in an ego-free way just made us feel like very part of a moment and, and still living in that moment as season five airs like we're in the moment of being remembered which is really weird <laughs> it's really weird because it just started with like you know a bunch of vagina jokes in a writer's room but now it's like actually becoming a moment and you know it's so you you touch okay the sense of friendship is really um it's tangible we can all feel it and i'm sure that you're all you know close friends there and i wonder you know sometimes i ask uh, you know comedians because there's there's a lot of tenderness you're telling you know you know serious truths is there a price to pay for comedy because there's that vulnerability that you bring into it I think there can be in the wrong space you know I have to credit Issa and Prentice so much for building such a, a a special room and setting the tone of like this is a place where you bring your best self and um, you bring all of yourself every day which has been such a great place to create story from um we have a, we used to always say like, we had a safety like phrase when you're sharing something that makes you feel really vulnerable. You'd always be like, well, this thing happened to my friend. 
um, and she did da da da, and you'd kind of share the story, and everyone knows it happened to you. But like, we would always be like, well, let me tell you about my friend. <laughs> and so we started there, and then we always said, what what shared in the room stays in the room. And Prentice, I I just love the number of times that we would have these like in depth conversations about really personal shit or about actual friends' lives. And he would say like, if it's for story, I want to share this but it stays here. Um, and, and it was never like, it better stay here. It wasn't like a threat. It was just like an understood, like that's the ethos of, of this room. We're going to share our most vulnerable selves to get to the best stories. And it's funny because I'm like, I know from a comedic standpoint, um, it's, it's maybe different to share things that are like funny for you or things that have happened to you that are hilarious. But this show is a dramedy and being able to share things that both like make you hurt and make you feel pain or things that you experience that you're not proud of, like all of that being able to have like a, a safe space to share it in was really important. And I think it it shows in the writing, I would, I would like to believe that it shows in the writing um, that we all felt um, comfortable sharing every part of ourselves with each other and creating story and, and character from that. What were some I guess the more challenging scenes to write, and you should also say part of this, you're also producer, now director too. So, I mean, in the different roles you play. I think, I mean, there's so many after, after five, five seasons, there were a lot of really challenging scenes. Um, I think the, I will say like the most rewarding scenes, if I, if I could answer it that way is is more so the things where we get into a gray area where there isn't a black and white conversation to be had or opinion to be had um, in a conversation. So from season one, like the whole is Jared gay because he had this one sexual experience. Um, from season two, even like does Issa deserve to be forgiven for cheating from um, each season kind of has like a, a moment where we in the room kind of got caught up in a conversation where it wasn't very clear what's the right, what's the wrong. And that's where our best, our, I would say our most rewarding stories come from. Um, we also always said that Insecure is a show that like our conversations, we like to live in the gray. We don't like to have things that are super clear, black and white um, in terms of like an opinion. Um, so sometimes it means that we'll write an episode and then go back and look for more gray because <laughs> we're like, this is too clear. Of course, this person's wrong. Of course, this person shouldn't have done this. And so we go back and try and, and layer in more, more layers. Like, and that's obviously shown in the Issa Mali fight in season four. So much of that was about who's at fault, how at fault are they? Can they, um, can we make it a little bit more subtle so it's not so clear? Um, there was clearly some backlash. <laughs> I think we made it maybe too subtle, but um, <laughs> but in the writing of it, we really wanted to make both of the girls evenly weighted in their fault. You know, it's interesting about forgiveness with friendships or where is that line where, uh, you know, you ask yourself in a friendship when you can't, you can't go back. I mean, this has also been something with, with Issa's uh, character as well. You know, what could you do in a relationship, not just friendship, but romantic relationships yeah. that you can't recover from? Yeah, it is, it is really something that we keep trying to, or we, we have always tried to explore is like, what are the lines? We, we were answering in season four, the idea of like, we were, our theme for the season was really like as someone in your life for a reason, a season or a lifetime and um, the growing pains of figuring that out. And obviously like, I feel so strongly that, that like Andrew and Molly, he was there for a reason. 
like it was to reveal to her sort of how she behaves in a committed relationship and how she's going to like use the pain of that breakup to heal. Um, and with Issa and Molly, um, it, it was really like, which one is it? Is it a season, like the season of them growing up and then she's not part of Issa's adult life or is it a lifetime? Um, because all the reasons are already there. So obviously for those who have seen the premiere episode now, it, it feels like it's leaning towards the latter, right? Like um, we saw at the end of season four that they started to come back together, but it wasn't really clear. Are they coming back together to say goodbye or to stay in each other's lives? And I think that episode 501 answers that question uh, really well. But in terms of like, are there things where you can't walk back from? I challenge that notion that there are things you can't walk back from. I think you can almost come back from anything if both people want to um, and do the work to and have the, have the, I guess, like self-healing too. <laughs> and obviously Molly being in therapy like helps us a lot as storytellers that she has a sounding board to like uh, work through her issues with. So yeah, yeah, I'm like, I think they can come back from anything. And I think they're proving that they are. Well, that's what's wonderful about, it's actually the sign of a, a real friendship. It's if you have no hardship to deal with, then is it really a friendship? And yeah, we certainly feel that and we, we feel that they're part, there are friends too, I guess, in watching them, you know, go through these uh, trials i want to you know touch of course on your journey to becoming a writer because um and iabo uh, she's born in uh, you know our the team member here she's born in nigeria and so i know that Ooh. becoming a writer was maybe not on the the cards for you when you went to stanford no. <laughs> uh no <laughs> my uh yvonne orji tells an amazing joke that i have borrowed so many times where she says in nigerian culture as a child, you're either a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or a disappointment. And I was like, woo, am I a disappointment? Because I literally like went to Stanford. My parents are like, oh, our great right hope. And then I was like, I think I want to be a writer. And they're like, writing dissertations for your doctorate? And I'm like, no, writing jokes. And so <laughs> I, um, yeah, it was a, it was weird, but I took a screenwriting class. I feel like it was like spring quarter of my senior year. I took my first, like, they just started a film major my junior year. And I took a screenwriting class and I was like, oh, it's right brain, it's left brain. I love this. And I kind of fell in love with it and I didn't know what to do with it. So even though I had taken a practice LSAT, I was like, Mom and dad, I'm sorry. It's not for me. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer. And my, I still remember my mom being like, lawyers tell stories too. And I'm like, yeah, that's different. And so <laughs> I was just like, this isn't for me. Um, yeah. And so it was like a weird meandering path um, to get here because I didn't know anyone who worked in the industry. Obviously, child of immigrants, I just had no like direct access to quote unquote Hollywood. Um, I moved abroad for a while. I worked for a nonprofit in France. I was, and then I also interned for a production company there. I did like short films and commercials and I started learning more about story. And then I started writing and I was writing. I remember I worked at this little sandwich shop. I had like so many jobs in France, but I worked at this in Paris? Shop. I'm in Paris. Oh, you are? Mia, you're in Paris? Oh my <laughs> God, my other home, c'est magnifique. Mais du, du habitez vous exactement? Cinquième, sixième, uh, vers uh, le, le Sorbonne. 
Ah, superbe. C'est joli, hein? But um, so when I was, I moved there and after college and I was just like, because I had studied abroad and I fell in love with it and I moved there. And I was first in Loire Valley and then I moved to Paris and I lived all over. I was in the first and the 13th and then the fifth. Um, but I loved living there and that's where I started writing and that's where I grew comfortable calling myself a writer because as you know French people they love a label and I was like oh I'm an intern who writes I'm a waitress who writes and they were like are you you're writing right now are you are you not a writer because you're not getting paid like was Monet not a painter because he wasn't getting paid like he's still a painter and I was like oh you're right okay cool 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 I'm a writer and it wasn't I think like a lot of people move to LA and call themselves aspiring writers And I skipped that step. It was actually kind of nice. It got me in some trouble at parties when I first got to LA and I'd be like, oh, I'm a writer. And people would be like, what do you write for? And I'm like, nothing yet, but one day soon. <laughs> but I, I, never, I never did the shrinking violet aspiring writer phase um, of, of my creative growth in Los Angeles, which, which I think put, like, kind of helped me move up a little faster because I was already claiming the space what, that I wanted to move into. I think that that's one thing about in uh, Paris and in France, uh, we respect our writers, we respect our intellectuals and artists, and it's not necessarily linked to money. So it's kind of nice to blossom yeah. slowly here. We don't have to think it's a, like it's not a success unless it makes lots of money or something. Yeah, ex that's exactly what it was. It was really, it was really that. And I'm so grateful for the time that I was there because I, I learned that. We've been listening to an interview with Nigerian-American writer and director Amy Aniobi. Amy hails from North Texas and graduated from both Stanford University and UCLA. A child of Nigerian immigrants, she has an international outlook having lived in the U.S. and abroad in France and Morocco. I think that's what makes her story so compelling. Anyone thinking of being a writer or artist can benefit from her insights, especially in how she finds stories through her own lived experiences, which she expresses through comedy and film. The idea that everyone is capable of creativity and artistry simply because everyone has a story is an inspired thought and philosophy that she talks about. Now back to the interview. The joke Yvonne mentioned, of course, I've heard it. And yes. I chose the, the path of engineering. However, I've always wanted to be a journalist. So that's why I'm working with Mia, the creative process mm -hmm. for other people, other immigrants who might be struggling with the same thing, the same kind of stigma. How did you break out of that? It sounded like travel was what helped you, but was there anything else that helped you sort of soften that blow to your parents? Yeah, I, I think one, a couple things. I would say first, when I, when they started the film major at Stanford, I was so shocked by it. And I was like, oh, should I stay an extra year? to major in film and I talked to an alum who was like don't you don't need to major in film major in what you want to make films about because you can learn you can pick up a camera but um how do you know the stories to tell and I think that is such a good thing for people to keep in mind if your parents are like be a lawyer go ahead go ahead and get that law degree and also write and even though yeah that's hard to do them both but maybe just do them both because at the end of the day you will always have, not, not like a plan B, that's not even what I'm saying, but something to tell stories about. I think the most boring person I see like as a resume is someone who went to film school for undergrad, went to film school for grad school, started as a PA, um, has worked their way up, worked at an agency, 
boring. What are your stories? Like, where did you live? When did you study abroad? When did you volunteer? When did you sell knives door to door? When did you work at Krispy Kreme? Like, what are the stories that you have to tell? tell? And I always, when I talk to aspiring writers, especially people from variant backgrounds and, and children of immigrants who are like, I wasted 10 years becoming a doctor. And I'm like, no, you didn't. You didn't waste that time. Now you can write about being a doctor. <laughs> now you can write a, a, any screenplay. You can have a character who's a doctor and they actually know how to talk. You know, it authenticates the stories you have to tell. It's never time wasted. Everything is story. So that's my number one thing is like, maybe like take the writing classes and do the thing that your parents are, are proud of you for doing, but just like, don't go too hard in their direction. You know, it's Very like, good. just do enough to give you some stories to tell. I think it's so true. And as you say, it's the most boring journey to have the straight line. But, you know, you've used those experiences. That's uh, uh, Issa's, uh, her, yeah. that's her job. You draw from this every day. Exactly. It's so funny because I, I just did what I liked when I was in undergrad because I didn't know, like I truly had no clue what I wanted to study, what I wanted to major in, what I wanted to be. I had no idea. I was like, I'm going to a good school, so hopefully it'll get sorted out along the way. But I really love nonprofits. And so I volunteered at nonprofits all through undergrad. And then when I graduated, I moved to France. My first job in France was at a nonprofit. Fast forward to what's Issa's job on Insecure? She works at a nonprofit. So I'm like, I know how nonprofits work. And so it was something that like, not saying that they like turned to me in the room, like you're the expert on nonprofits, not that at all. There are actually a lot of people in the room who had worked at nonprofits, but it means that every experience you're living is, could be story someday. So there are times when even, I remember one time I like accidentally pulled in too quick to a curb and I, I hit a curb and, and like my tire exploded and I had to call AAA and I was so mad at myself. And then I kind of reframed it in the moment. And I was like, this is story. I've never had to do this before. And now I can write a scene. I'll know how to write a scene about waiting for AAA. Well, let's fast forward to season three when Issa gets in a car accident and has to call for someone to come help her. And she's on the phone with Daniel. And he's like, should I come get you? That moment I've now lived it. And so, and other people in the room had lived it. And we can say like, oh my God, the guy who helps you is always someone who's like this. And we can imbue that with realistic experiences because we've lived it. Life creates story. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I don't know if I answered the question. <laughs> oh no, perfectly. And it's also those details that we're so fascinated about. Uh, because it's the insider's point of view. It's just it, the authenticity of it. We're all voyeurs. I think that's what we love. <laughs> so we're yeah. voyeurs and we like see, seeing other people mess up their lives from the safety of our homes. Exactly. It's like, ah, let me learn a lesson or two. <laughs> and so you, you draw on these experiences that you have. I know you also have, uh, you know, now that it's, you know, the sad conclusion or, or you know, I think perfect shape uh, for Insecure. You have some other pieces or other projects on the boil, um, enjoy your meal or just tell us how you're looking forward to, to some of those. And what's that starting again? What's the beginning process like? Yeah, um, you know, it's exciting and scary. I'm, I'm really, I'm really grateful for the time that I've had um, to hone parts of my storytelling on Insecure and other shows I've worked on. Um, but I'm also really excited to get back to my voice. You know, it's like obviously so much of my voice is in this show and, and so much of how Issa the character speaks is because 
I and other writers gave her words, you know? So I'm in the show, of course, but there are also things that are fully, you know, that come from me that I would love to explore more. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that. And it's kind of scary because it's like, you need a little bit of time away to really feel yourself fully again, where you're not thinking like, well, how would Issa say it? Or would Prentice like this? Or like, does that fit into so-and-so's story? Like, you know, you're, it's fully coming from you again, which can be a little scary. It almost feels like even though I'm working on TV projects, in some ways it feels like writing a feature, like you're writing by yourself again, which is like, whoa, I haven't done that in a long time. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'm really thrilled about the development I have at HBO and HBO Max, um, from Enjoy Your Meal at HBO Max and The Dolls at HBO, and just getting to develop new ideas and new voices also. I, I launched a mentorship program this year, and I'm really looking forward to funding projects from the writers that I've gotten to know and help them make their voices shine, because that's, that's how you move forward, is by somebody giving you you know, a leg up and people have done that for me. So I want to pay it forward. I just love that advocacy work, mentoring and, you know, mm -hmm. kind of paying it forward. That's just, that's great. One thing I was wondering, and now I have to say, I just started watching Insecure and I was mesmerized. I okay. just, to me, as a Black woman, I can see what work you're doing. I relate to every single thing, you know, because yeah, of course. <laughs> Uh -huh. I, I mean, uh -huh. I, I just couldn't, the two characters were, yeah. But what I was wondering about was when you start like this new show, or even when you started Insecure, did you have advocacy in mind? Yeah, I, I think in terms of, did I have advocacy in mind? I always think of like, you know, those athletes who get caught doing something terrible and they're like, I didn't set out to be a role model, you know? And they're just like, I, I happen to be really good at baseball. I didn't mean to be a role model. Quit judging me. I'm the opposite of that. I just always knew part of having a platform is being a role model. Like part of it is helping people. Part of being a showrunner is helping other people become showrunners. And there's nothing sadder to me than the writers who want to get to the top and get all of the recognition and never share the, the stage. Because at the end of the day, I'm in this to be immortal. And the only way you become immortal is by having people continue to to speak of you and continue to recognize the work you've done and continue to grow in the ways that you help them already start to help them be planted, you know? And, and I'm like, the only way you get to be immortal as a storyteller where TV just like is disappearing um, the minute it airs is by helping other writers become storytellers. So that, that's what I'm in it for. Um, so advocacy was always in my DNA. And maybe it is that you know, that part of me that loves working for nonprofits and like, was like, I could be, I could make nothing and just help some children learn how to read for the rest of my life. Like there's part of me that is, has that spirit in her. So I think maybe that's why I don't think everyone who gets into this is like that, but I think, I, I don't think I know that Issa is, you know? And so in another way, it was such a natural fit to work with her, not just because we're black girls who went to Stanford and are awkward um, and all of that, but also because part of that mentorship, it's in her DNA too. Um, so it was so easy to be in spaces and say, hey, this person's shining, can we give them a shot doing this? Hey, I'd love to, um, I'm, I've been directing a lot, could I have a shot directing on the show? Like things like that are so much more, like better received in an environment that's already ripe for mentorship. Um, I don't know another way to function, um, except to help to pay it forward. 
So <laughs> I think it's just in my DNA. And I wish it was in more that's writers' true. DNAs, honestly. You know, that's, that's what we're here to do. You know what the struggle entails. And so if you can help those who have talent, because writers are also sensitive people. It's a kind of a strange combination oh, yeah. in television because you have to oh, be yeah. kind of business, you know, you have to be a producer, but really mm -hmm. you're also a sensitive person sharing all these things. We should oh, yeah, say I'm mad sensitive. Your, yeah so it's hard. i don't know how you balance that or like you know it's the jekyll and hyde or what but um mm -hmm. we should say as you said both awkward girls you your relationship with Issa, it's it's like ongoing it's developed there was awkward black girl just tell us a little bit about that genesis yeah of course we both went to stanford and we knew who we were but we weren't in the same year so i didn't i didn't know her well at stanford and it wasn't until Awkward Black Girl that we reconnected because we had mutual friends and I was in grad school at UCLA for screenwriting and they were looking to hire writers. So we were reintroduced. And, and I remember our, our friend basically, do you remember Issa from college? And I was like, yeah. And, and I was like, oh yeah, the girl who's always putting on plays. <laughs> and they were like, well, we're hiring writers for her web series. Um, and so that, that's how I got reintroduced to her. And I'm so like literally the best thing that's ever happened in my life. <laughs> I'm so happy I got reintroduced to her and got to work with her on Awkward Black Girl. And even after that show ended, again, much like Insecure, it was very much like we don't want to overstay our welcome. So it was two seasons. And when it ended, she, I always told her, I was like, I'm just going to stay in touch with you because if something else comes up down the line, I want to work with you again because I enjoyed it so much. I just enjoyed being in a creative space with her, someone who saw me and whose voice I felt like I could mimic slash imitate and was partially mine as well. Um, it was so organic writing for that web series and I wanted to replicate that. And luckily that sort of like cyclical, like, um, I guess, support structure we have developed on Insecure as well. I'm curious about what your writer's room is like, because it's all behind the scenes, you don't get to see, but as you say, I have a feeling it's quite organic and maybe more respectful because I've also heard from other people that other writer's rooms are pretty, can be combative, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't, um, yeah, and I've been in, some rooms that were not as um, comfortable as, as insecure. And I'll say, I think there are some people who's, who breed brilliance with the lack of support, like cutting people down makes them better at their jobs. Like I, I know some great shows, like I won't name them, but some amazing shows that have super toxic rooms. And I'm like, why? Why is it that way? But our room is not like that. Um, it, it's just very warm and we have like a mix. It's, it's mostly women, but there are a lot, there are like four men, five men, I think in the final season and six women, um, uh, mostly black women, but also, uh, and also, uh, other colors and also queer people and, and different income levels. Like it was just a mix. And I felt like our room. And then also, I still remember we had two white writers our first year and Prentice, he was like, well, I never wanted to have, um, I had been the only black writer in so many rooms. I didn't even want to do that to a white person. So <laughs> and I was like, well done Prentice. And like, obviously as it went forward, we had more, but like it was something that, that I just think it was so intentional, the way the room was constructed. It was so intentional and it was really like vibes first. Like you have to be able to vibe. You have to get along with these people. You have to be someone who's warm and giving and generous and kind first. And then let's talk about your writing talent. And then let's talk about the stories you have to share. But if you don't have a reputation of being just a good person, then it just, it wouldn't have been a fit. 
because our room was just, um, it was that. And when I talk about like that cyclical support, it's really like I give to the room and the room gives to me. And it just continues that way. And I feel like every writer in our room was like that. We got better because we were part of this room. The challenges you have being a writer and producer wearing those two hats, what is a daily challenge that you could do without? A daily challenge I could do without. It's so funny. Like, I, I always feel sometimes to our detriment that we write kind of in a vacuum where we're, we, we write what we think is the best story. And then we put on our producer hats and say, okay, now how do we make this story? And very often we had an amazing support in Jim Cleaverweiss, who was our um, line producer, but he's a creative line producer. He really thinks about story as well. And he would be like, this script is unproducible. Um, uh, we have six days, we have this much money, you cannot do it. <laughs> and we're like, oh. And then he would find like, okay, well, what if this scene and this scene were combined because it's kind of hitting the same story point? What if this was changed to this? Could this play in this location? We already have access to this street. What if we do it over there? And so we would have these conversations to try and make the things we wrote in a vacuum producible. To have a creative line producer like that is such an asset and such a, you know, like bow down to HBO um, for having access to people like that who, who are so respective of the story that they're not just like, you can't shoot this. But also I think as a producer, sometimes in the writing process, I had trouble removing my producer hat because I'm always thinking of producibility. Like I think maybe uh, because I started in the web as well. And because I shoot indie projects all the time, I'm always like, where are we doing this? How are we doing this? And, and there were times in the room where I would say, well, guys, at the end of the day, like, this is like too many locations. And I just would be like, can we just like write the story first? Like in a blue sky situation, Amy, we don't know. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so there were times where sometimes my producer brain got in the way of my writing brain um, or vice versa, you know, but I think that's what kind of makes you a showrunner. That's what makes you um, hireable in television is when you have both sides of your brain, um, of the producer brain and the writer brain, the left and the right, um, working in tandem. I actually think that that's what helps you move up because you will become a producer's worst nightmare if you don't know how to write a producible script and their best friend if you can turn something that's all creative into something producible. <laughs> so I always want to be, be able to do both. And do you have then some projects that I guess are unfilmable, but are for like the page or, you know, or just you envisage them being, you know, plays or are you drawn to writing in other mediums? Uh, yes, I used to be more so, I'll be honest. I used to write and put up plays. I did a one act play festival with some friends from my screenwriting program from UCLA. Like we did it our first year out of school. I I used to really love writing one acts and shorts and um, and web series as well. I think now just because um, I, I, I always feel like I started indie and I'll die indie. I always want to keep a hand in the indie space because when you know you can do it for yourself, the money doesn't mean as much. Like them saying, we'll fund it if, we'll make it if, doesn't mean as much when you can also have the power to create on your own. So I always want to keep that part of me that's indie. I always want to like do one for them, one for me and create my own content on the side and all this stuff. I, I kind of have to do that to feel completely artistically whole because sometimes the notes, even when they're good notes, sometimes the notes will kill you. And I just want to be able to 
live as an artist, like in my artistic integrity sometimes, but in terms of like, do I still write a lot of things on the, on the side and in other mediums? Not so much. I've, I've said for a long time that I would love to write a book someday. When I first started writing as a child, I wrote poetry and novels, um, which is wild. I wrote three novels when I was a kid. I'm sure they're bad, but they're like on a busted hard drive somewhere. No one will ever see them, but yeah, but I, I mostly wrote poetry. I have so many notebooks filled with poetry and, um, and I wrote novels and part of me has always wondered if I'll ever write a book again. But right now I, I love television. Television is like, especially during the pandemic has been like my closest friend <laughs> when we couldn't see people, you know, I was just like, well, let me tune into Queen's Gambit, see what she's up to. You know, it was just like TV was that bomb during such a hard time. And I feel like I, I love its resilience when times get bad, people will always need entertainment and filmed entertainment in particular. So my passion is really in television right now, but I have featured projects and one day, and I also have a musical that I'm working on. So one day I'm sure I'll return to the stage or to poems or to books, but right now TV is making my heart beat. I think you're well suited to your medium, so I wouldn't, but I know that there'll be some people listening to, oh, she has a few novels. <laughs> we, we, we have, <laughs> let's just mind that. No, but it's, and it's interesting. Sometimes it's just a small thing. I remember just reading the, the film, The Third Man was a, had, Graham Greene had to write it as a book first, yeah. even though he knew it was a film, but that's because he so much has to write as a novel even yeah. though it, it was going to be a film. So it's interesting how you can have certain freedoms with that. I think it's about having the freedoms of like not thinking it's like a blueprint or something like that. Yeah, uh, freedom uh, is the word. It's to have the freedom. Yeah, that's why you write in other mediums is to always have the freedom and the control to say it exists like this and I controlled that. So let me have leverage over here to make something else. Yeah. I'm wondering what you were like as a kid. I mean, do you see like certain kind of skills or attributes that like you, you call upon now, but they were, they were there or they were just kind of hidden or. Oh, for sure. Like, I mean, I was a storyteller as a kid and I, I used to, my brothers and I, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with commercials. I really like barely watched TV. I mostly watched the commercials until I was a little older because I love the ads that have stories in them. And my brothers and I would make fake commercials and perform them for my parents. So we had, um, <laughs> we had a fake cologne called aggression and it was for men who were wimps. <laughs> so we would do this commercial. We're like, Oh, when you, I, I can't remember the commercial exactly. All I remember is we'd say aggression now with more creatine <laughs> at the end of the commercial. We were just like, we just thought it was funny that Axe body spray existed and it, we made a fake take a cologne commercial and like performed it for my parents and they were just like <laughs> okay <laughs> they did not get it um I also danced as a kid I did ballet I did modern dance I did hip-hop I was such a a dance geek and and also I I was in marching band I was drum major of my high school marching band the first black drum major of the largest high school marching band in the world um there's a movie in there and um <laughs> and I think both dance and marching band, marching band, obviously I had to lead the band. This is, I think it was 400 kids, 400 kids, that I had to lead every day in practice on the field. I would haul ass to the back of the field to keep directing them from the back of the field and then run all the way back whenever they turned around. And I think that really suited me, both of those things, dance and marching band suited me to not only becoming a showrunner, but also becoming a director because as a director, you're directing, 
the band, which is the production, you know, and the set. And I really, and also the dance part of it, I think the rhythm of jokes, the rhythm of comedy was already intrinsically in me because dance has a rhythm. And they say, I remember my band director in high school, he said, music, what makes music is the silence. You know, music is the absence of sound between sounds. And I remember being like, huh, okay, you deep. But like now when I think about it, it's like, it's all about rhythm. It's all about pacing. It's all about like that rule of threes, hard consonants, the things that people say are intrinsically funny. Um, so all of that sort of led to this like foundation of the, me understanding comedic storytelling and comedic rhythm and being able to run a set. I still remember as the black kid in the marching band um, who was leading the marching band, you have a lot of people doubting you. Like this is North Texas and people are like, oh, you're the drum major? And I'm like, yeah. So growing up, like now that I'm a director, like I'm 37, but black don't crack, baby. I don't look that, <laughs> that age. So people are like, you're the director? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know? So I'm just like, those things kind of go in tandem. I feel like I'm reliving some of my childhood experiences with a little bit more confidence on me now. I love that. That storytelling carried forward into your real life, you know? Yeah, exactly. I kind of wanted to ask you about earlier was your analytical side with the producing versus the creative side with the storytelling. How did you sort of migrate towards more of the analytical? And you're also now talking about directing. Like, how did that transition work for you? I think, well, it's interesting that you say migrate towards the analytical, because I think that every role on a film set or on a TV set, everyone's a storyteller. And I think one of the things that I try and remind myself of when I'm meeting with the props department or with sound department or with the grips and, and explaining the things or explaining through my DP, the things that I'm looking for, they're storytellers too. So even though these jobs are technical, they're there to support the story. One of my favorite conversations are like always with, with costumes and set design where they ask, tell us about this character. I'm not saying I need them to have green walls and they need to have a white rug. That's not what I say to my set team. I say like, oh, she's forward thinking and she like um, grew up in a small home and she's new money. And now, you know, she really loves stuff that's soft and fuzzy. You know, I'm telling them the general stuff and then they take it and turn it into story. So even the technical roles have to start from the creative. Even as a director, when I look at a script, I don't immediately go in and like, oh, let me block it. First, I have to like go scene by scene. What is the story? What is the theme of the episode? What is each uh, character's arc? What are they thinking in each scene? How does what they thought in that scene compare to this scene? And then I have to build it from a story place first and wrap my mind around it in a creative way before I even get to the technical. I'm not going to block it correctly if I don't know what the story is. Um, so I think the two are linked. But in terms of even producing more and um, thinking more in that way. Um, I don't know, like, I, I, I think it was just always there. Like, I, I think as like a nerdy kid, there was part of me that always felt like I would go into business, something, you know, I thought I'd be a lawyer, like something just like practical. My dad was an insurance consultant, my mom's a nurse, like, I was like, I'm gonna do something mad practical. And then I became this artist. And so there's part of me that sort of like knew that part of me belonged in a practical place, even though a lot of me was creative. Um, and I would say as a kid, I was maybe 70% creative and 30% the practical shit. 
And as I've gotten older, it's kind of balanced out and I'm a little more half and half. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think at least in me, the two are linked. Um, I produce because I write, you know, I don't, I think I thought I could have just been a producer, but in retrospect, I think the two for me just go hand in hand and it's led by the creative first, if that makes sense. I think definitely. And it can't be overemphasized the fact that I think it's just organizational capacity. I think it's not, it's analytical, but I think it's organizational capacity. We have to be organized because otherwise we'll just be all emotional all the time. Oh yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm a Virgo. I'm a double Virgo. So organization, like one of my friends said that Amy's love language is calendars, uh, scheduling. <laughs> Amy's love language is scheduling. And I was like, it is. Um, yeah. So the organizational part, yes. <laughs> yes. But what, what's lovely. And as you touched upon every, and I think that's what we are, we who might not work in such collaborative mediums, but we can really appreciate um, in, in film and television and theater is how every person of that creative team is really creative. And there's so many roles even that we don't even know about, but are so important, like casting, you know, if it's not mm -hmm. cast right. And that's another storytelling, but they're not writing the words. Yes. Yeah, it's true. Everyone's a storyteller. And I think when we remember that, it helps us come to set with more um i guess love and with more compassion for why people have made their choices i i used to at times come to set and say like oh, in my mind i'd be thinking i don't like this like i'd see something and i'd be like i don't like this why is it like this and then i started getting to a place where i would ask instead of starting to edit right away like there shouldn't be a lamp here there shouldn't be a table here instead i'm like why did you choose to put a table here? You know, and I'm like, let me ask, because they're storytellers too. Why did you choose this? What made you think this? Um, how, how, what is this saying for you about the character? And coming it that way. And sometimes, you know, it can be a little slower to work more collaboratively with people and get to the bottom of why they think a thing. Sometimes it can be a little slower, but at the end of the day, um, it, it wins you time at the end of the day, because later they're, thinking more like you because you've led them to get to that instead of just telling them what you need. It's sort of like having those discussions actually makes the creative process and, and all of the hard, the difficulty of translating your brain to somebody else, which is so much of what writing, being a writing producer is. It's like, read my mind. They can't read your mind. So they're trying their best <laughs> and they're also storytellers. So they're also telling their stories too through their medium. And treating them like artists with a capital A is actually better in the long run because then you're working together from a place of mutual respect instead of like, I'm the boss, you know, that, that's, that doesn't help anyone. I'm wondering now, having had this wonderful collaborative experience with Insecure and you're moving forward to, you know, new projects and you've achieved many things, as you say, it's a wonderful uh, moment and you've been, you've come through and, and now I'm wondering if you feel like, oh, you've achieved uh, this in terms of uh, storytelling. Now, you know, you've broadened out and you're telling other, you know, kind of multicultural stories. Do you like to discuss some of those? Did you feel like, oh, now I've done that. Now I can, you know, tell some other stories. It's less that I feel like, oh, I've done Insecure and now I'm going to tell stories about other types of people. It's not so much that. It's, it's more so that I poured so much of the Black female experience into the show and all of us writers have, you know, it's not a singular thing that's unique to me, but we all have that now I feel 
tapped out <laughs> in that particular lane. And it's so funny because a lot of people, because now, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to producing other content and supervising other writers and bringing more stories forward. And a lot of people bring me insecure type stuff, adulting girl, figuring it out. She's black. And I'm like, y'all, I just did that. Like, I'm like, I can't, I can't, you know, it's like, I, I'm a little tapped out right there right now. And I need to live uh, other experiences to be able to explore that lane again. Um, and so as a result of that, not wanting to keep on mining the same vein, I am sort of opening up to like, what other stories can I tell? It's actually something interesting and I, I haven't quite cracked it yet, but I'd love to tell a story about a uh, first gen experience because both Issa Ray and Yvonne Orji are first gen, you know, but we never touched on it in the show. Um, their characters were from LA. So there is sort of like, okay, well, that's a thing that I know about that I've experienced that is not in the show um, that maybe I could tell a story about, but in a cable way, you know, I, I obviously really love writing in the HBO voice and the edgy comedy tone. So that that's something that I'm interested in, but the exact like adulting, turning 30, dealing with men and work and apartment, like I'm sort of like, please don't bring me those stories. <laughs> like, I love right. this, but give me a break. <laughs> I just need a break. <laughs> you know, through that show, Insecure, do you think you've changed the way, the, you know, stigmas people might have had about Black women and about their lives? I would like to believe so. Um, I, I, I don't, I want to say yes, but I think if it was done, it was done on a micro level, you know? After the 2016 election, I still remember waking up the morning after and thinking like, how does Hillary Clinton feel? And then how does Shonda Rhimes feel? Because Shonda wrote a show that centered a black woman helping the government. And then all the women who watched her show went and voted for Trump. And I was like, wow, you know, the, how little impact she had in humanizing powerful women. And it's not her job to have that impact, but I have to believe that somewhere in her, like my, my gut says somewhere in her, she was hopeful that me writing a, centering a black female experience helps people see black women as more human. And um, it didn't really happen. And so I was really, really sad um, that morning. Cause I was like, oh, my writing doesn't help. That was where I kind of got lost in that feeling for a little bit. My writing doesn't help change the world. But then there were people who like were sliding into my DMs and like writing me on Facebook and saying like, if I didn't have Insecure to watch, I would be so depressed right now. And I'm realizing that so much of what we do creatively is a micro difference. It's not going to change the world, but does it change a few minds? Hopefully, yeah. Um, does it make someone laugh and give them a lighter day and therefore make them a little nicer to the people they're encountering throughout their day? Hopefully, yeah. Also, it's all I know how to do, so if I knew how to like raise funds and become a politician and not speak my mind and, and speak to a party line, maybe I would do that right? and try and change the world more directly. But um, all I know how to do is uh, make goofy jokes and, and tell stories about women fumbling up their lives. So I'm, I'm hopeful that it's useful, you know? I hope it is. And I was pretty much changed by just one episode. Yeah. So, I mean, and maybe, maybe the, the issue is just that writing for a specific community has more impact than trying to write for the entire world. Yes. 
Ooh, you know, I love that. And I, I think you're right because I don't know how many stories, many more stories we need about a man who moves back home and then his wife is a breath pointer. What? Like there's so many network comedies that are that. Um, and I, I think writing for a specific community, having an impact on that community. Like I won't know the ripple effects that Insecure has or my writing has until for years to come, you know, because it's who is being inspired now based on what they saw that, and they go and do something different tomorrow. Um, we might not know for a long time, but I'm happy to be on the journey to see it happen. Well, if you ever need an engineering story, um, <laughs> I, I have some. Perfect, perfect. I'm glad Thank to hear you that. So much. You're wonderful. Of course. And so, you know, in closing, because we're an educational initiative, and I know you're big into mentoring, um, I guess, you know, as you think, um, you know, some life lessons or teachers that were important for you, and as you think about the importance of the arts, what were some of those things that you, that you learned that you, you always uh, keep with you? And what would you like young people uh, to know, preserve and remember? Oh, God, yeah, I, I like desperately hope one day to win to get to give an Emmy speech or, you know, or an Oscar, some sort of speech so I can thank my high school English teacher. So I'll thank her here on this podcast. <laughs> her name is Deborah Vernon and she pulled me out of band craft practice because I told her I was applying to TCU because I wanted to study ballet. And she pulled me out of band class and she was like, you're not supposed to be a dancer, you're a writer. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, well, I can do both. And she was like, no, do not go to TCU to study dance go to and sorry to tcu it's a great school it's a great school but you know there are some that are more academically up there and she was like please apply to a different school you cannot just go to this school and study dance and she's the reason that i applied to stanford um i wasn't going to apply i had no interest and it's and i also when i got in i was kind of like i'm not a nerd i didn't know i am a nerd but i didn't know I learned quickly, but <laughs> when I got there and started bragging about marching band, I figured it out pretty quick that I was a nerd, but yeah, she's the reason that I applied there. And I, I grew a true, I already had a love of learning, but an applied love of learning, like seeking learning out, um, above other things. And it's, and it's led me to not just be a writer, but a really good writer. And yeah, I, I always feel like this, the, the lessons that I want, like people who are starting out to remember is again, like, don't worry about majoring in film, majoring what you want to make films about. Find your voice. You find your voice by living, not by just taking film classes. Like you have to go out and have lived experiences. And that doesn't mean let's go try ketamine. Like it literally just means go do something other than be in a class, um, uh, like travel, volunteer, work a weird job, do the thing your parents want you to do for a summer. It's not going to kill you. Just like give it a try because it just gives you other lived experiences. I also think an alum once told me like, do, some, do something before you're ready because by the time you're ready, someone else would have already done it. I love that advice. It's what led me to start making web series and um, get on Issa's radar for Off a Black Girl um, like because I was already kind of doing that for myself and writing things for myself um, and filming my own shorts. The first short I ever filmed was when I was like a junior in high school and my brother starred in it, you know, um, again, because we loved like performing things for our parents so it was all because I was doing things before I was ready I also love the uh, notion of networking across more than networking up I think a lot of people waste time trying to find the person at the top who can help them without realizing that most of your best opportunities come from people sitting right next to you Issa was sitting right next to me that's where the opportunity came from 
Um, and I, I think that there's something about the flashy name that just intoxicates people into wanting to be in their space. But like, in fact, your friends are the ones who break open doors for you because they actually know you. So spend more time networking across and up. Yeah, those are a few things. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, those, those are, are great. <laughs> you could just take those all to heart and really, uh, I mean, that's inspiring for me. So you're inspiring for us. You were inspired by your teacher. And, you know, I, I have a great shout out to teachers everywhere. who Those who just, or anyone, even our peers, as they say, who see you, our parents, whatever, see you and say, you know, I believe in you. It, yeah. It, it means everything because we, we're sensitive people, artists. Um, exactly. I agree. <laughs> So thank you so much, Amy Aniobi, for telling stories that need to be told and shining a light on Black lives and experiences and uh, all your shows about love, friendship, and how we live now. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thanks for having me. This is so fun. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Yaba Lawal. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Winter Time was composed by Nicolas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. <laughs>